Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. With Donald Trump quarantining with coronavirus, the remaining presidential debates look less and less likely to take place. So we've gone back and re-examined the last one, and we were struck by one particular moment. And if you were traumatised by the presidential debate the first time around, stiffen your sinews. Here it comes. The Green New Deal will pay for itself as we move forward. We're not going to build plants that, in fact, are great polluting plants. Do you We're support build the re- Green New Deal? P- pardon me? You support No, I don't support the Green oh, New Deal. Oh, you don't? Oh, well, well that's a big not... statement. I support that means the you just the radical left. I, su- I support oh, the don't. Biden plan that I put forward. Okay. The Biden plan. But what is the Green New Deal? And how has it become so politically toxic? We hear from Noam Chomsky, the renowned public intellectual, and the economist Robert Polin. They've just co-written a book on the Green New Deal and they think it's the only way to prevent, well, the end of the world. This is a project that really transcends everything because the fate of the Earth is truly at stake. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, who's afraid of the Green New Deal? Several Democrats unveiled a Green New Deal last week, modeled on President Roosevelt's New Deal, but aimed at addressing climate change. I've noted with great interest the Green New Deal. And we're going to be voting on that in the Senate. We'll give everybody an opportunity to go on record. I want to talk about uh, certainly another thing, uh, give you a chance to clarify the Green New Deal. Um, uh, One of the things we're even um, hearing the president say is that uh, you would outlaw uh, cows farting. That would be out. uh, Children, hamburgers, ice cream. Uh, Any of that uh, true I think I think it is interesting. It's always good to see how these narratives are manipulated. They're trying to say that the Green New Deal is about what we have to give up, what we have to cut back on, when in fact uh, the Green New Deal itself is a resolution to be more expansive. It is to be able to generate more and to make sure that we're investing in working class, uh, in working class Americans. So what is the Green New Deal? The title is inspired by Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal in the 1930s, which ploughed money into public projects in order to create jobs and get the economy going again after the Great Depression. The Green New Deal 
is a series of policy ideas which, again, rely on substantial government spending in order to create jobs, but this time in a way that will also tackle climate change. So, for example, policies that would invest in renewable energy whilst weaning the economy off fossil fuels. The term has been around for 15 years, but it really gained a lot of resonance roughly a year and a half ago when the new congresswoman in the United States, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, and Senator Ed Markey from my own state of Massachusetts introduced what they call a Green New Deal resolution. That's Robert Polin. Robert has been working on a Green New Deal for more than a decade. But when most Americans hear the term now, they think of the more recent and radical policies put forward by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, and Ed Markey. But Robert Polin, like Joe Biden in the presidential debate, is not a fan. That particular resolution was not well thought out. I myself have criticised it in print. If you want to say what we mean by the Green New Deal is the Ocasio-Cortez Markey Resolution of February 2019, I'm opposed to the Green New Deal, if that's what we mean. But that isn't what we should mean. The idea of the Green New Deal has much broader connotations than that particular version of it. So if this version of the Green New Deal is disliked by both ends of the political spectrum, is there another version which might be more politically palatable? Robert Polin has been working with Noam Chomsky, the father of modern linguistics, and a man once voted the world's greatest living public intellectual to write a book about their version of the Green New Deal. They believe it needs to be adopted urgently, as climate change is escalating fast. The last few years, it's become pretty desperate, especially with uh, President Trump's uh, wrecking ball, uh, destroying every international agreement, including the Paris negotiations, racing towards maximizing the use of fossil fuels and uh, undermining the regulatory apparatus that protects Americans from the toxic consequences of pollution and emissions. But by now it's become really desperate. That's Noam Chomsky, Robert Poland's co-author. I'm an institute professor emeritus at MIT, a laureate professor at the University of Arizona, where I now reside. Noam Chomsky has a very stark warning for the world. We have a couple of decades to determine whether organised human life on Earth will survive in any recognisable form or whether indescribable catastrophes will come. Robert Polin agrees with this need for urgency. What we're looking at is right now the global average temperature is about one degree Celsius above what it had been in the pre-industrial times. If we allow that global average temperature to rise to one and a half degree, What we're looking at is massive increases in the prevalence of droughts, floods, extreme heat events, which in turn will prevent food from growing adequately, floods which will drown out coastal areas. For example, most of Bangladesh will be wiped out. That's 400 million people. Puerto Rico would basically be totally wiped out. So then we would have hundreds of millions of people, if not billions, who would be climate refugees with no place to go over the next 30 years. 
If the problem would intensify, if we allowed the average temperature to rise to two degrees and even three degrees, if you allow the global average temperature to rise four degrees, you are courting the end of life on Earth. Now, it doesn't mean that it's 100% certainty, but are we willing to risk 7% likelihood of the end of life on Earth when we have the prospect of stabilizing the climate. So that's what we're looking at if we don't take action on stabilization. We either act decisively now, every day we delay makes it harder to deal with. And if we delay too long, maybe past the time when it can be handled, we just go off into massive catastrophe. I mean, just given the scale of that global problem, you know, whole countries being drowned by, by climate change, um, potentially, as you say, all life being wiped out if the temperature goes up so much. I mean, a lot of people are overwhelmed by the scale of the problem, and it's very hard to try to work out how you can do anything about it. How did you go about trying to look for solutions? My background is in macroeconomics, which means uh, it's economics, of course, but it's we try to integrate big projects, the operation of the economy as a whole. So, that's my basic skill set. So naturally, I use my basic skill set to think about it. I focused in on the questions that I thought I could handle most effectively, which is the relationship between economic activity, jobs, growth, and an actual positive climate stabilization plan, how you pay for it. And with all the tools of macroeconomics, were you slightly overwhelmed by the problem? Um, it. I, I, yes, <laughs> let's say yes. Um, the specific thing that motivated my earliest publications on this was the assumption, and this was across the board, I, I think almost all economists, and certainly in the public consciousness, was the assumption that you could advance a climate stabilization program, but it would entail massive reductions in economic activity, which means incomes going down, and jobs going down, communities getting uh, desperately hurt. And that didn't make any sense to me as a macroeconomist, because I know when you invest in anything, anything, good, bad, indifferent, green, not green, invest in anything, you will create jobs. And if you invest more in something, you will create more jobs. So the basic idea for me was to follow my instinct to see if I could demonstrate what seemed obvious to me, which is intuitive, which is if we invest in green things and we invest at a large scale, we will get the good green results. We will get a cleaner economy. We'll get a, a cleaner energy system and we will create a lot of jobs and they could be good jobs and they will help communities. So that was really where my work started. And that remains, you know, a basic finding that I've been arguing for and I think have demonstrated in published research. Having worked on a Green New Deal for more than a decade, Robert already has experience of putting some of those ideas into action at a governmental level. I uh, got to be a consultant to the U.S. Energy Department after President Obama got elected. It was the biggest green investment program in the history of the world. It was $90 billion committed at the time. And I was working on uh, the issues of implementation and specifically around issues of job creation because we were staring at the Great Recession at the time. So how do we maximize job opportunities by investing in green activities? So what are the main tenets of this 
global Green New Deal. How does it work? So investments in energy efficiency and renewable energy at the level of about 2.5% of GDP every year will enable us to move within 30 years to a point at which we operate the global economy with almost zero carbon dioxide emissions. So that's the stabilization point. And now in doing that, of course, we have the investments, as I said before, investments will create jobs. Breaking it down a bit, so 2.5% of GDP for every country, would it really make enough difference in the time that we've got to save the planet? Yes, I'm convinced. And, you know, I've worked on it for several years. My research has been reviewed by other people I respect. And on top of that, there's other people that have reached pretty much the same conclusion. And you also describe how a Green New Deal could lead to new jobs in some of these sustainable energy industries. But presumably they'd also cost a lot of jobs. Yes. And there does tend to be sort of more people working in industries like coal and oil than you'd get on, say, a wind farm. So how do you offset that? That has also been a major focus of my research. And the basic approach is what we would call just transition, meaning we focus around people transitioning out of the fossil fuel sectors where they do have jobs, obviously. And in most situations, in most countries, the fossil fuel jobs, jobs in oil, coal, natural gas, are pretty good jobs. So how do we deal with that? Well, the first thing is critical, is that the number of jobs in the fossil fuel industry is actually extremely small relative to the number of jobs that will get created through investing in the green economy by, you know, 10 times more jobs if we're going to follow a path around 2% of GDP. The number of people, for example, in the coal industry in the United States is uh, 60,000 people. That's like 1,000th of 1% of the labor force in the United States. It's minuscule. You can fit it all into a football field. So um, this is an easy problem to deal with. If there's a commitment, it's not a problem. You have to have a program that commits to finding new employment. By the way, when I say 2.5% of GDP, it includes the Just Transition Program for workers and communities in the fossil fuel industry. Presumably, though, in addition to any amount that a government would spend, industries, in order to adapt to these new energy sources, would have to spend quite a lot of money too. How do you persuade an entire economy to invest so much in changing? The 2.5% of GDP is not just government spending. It is total spending. It is public and private spending. And most of the spending, in the way at least that I've modeled the problem, most of the spending will be private, incentivized by policy. So the policy agenda that we have to create has to have both uh, supports and regulations. The supports means that you have to have very low-cost credit available for people that are going to invest in clean energy for communities. So you need to have that. And then you need regulations, what we call renewable portfolio standards. That's a fancy way of saying that utilities have to stop burning non-renewable energy. They have to stop burning coal. They have to stop burning natural gas. And you set a standard, let's say 5% reduction every year. And if you don't do it, you're in violation of the law and you either go to jail or you pay gigantic fines. And so you incentivize people to do that. That's really interesting. I mean, just on that personal micro level for ordinary people, how much would their lives change under a successful Green New Deal? 
at a basic level, not very much, unless they wanted it to change. If you're living in your house or your apartment, and you know your connection with the world of energy is your electricity bill, your utility bill, your utility bill is going to go down, not up. Your, your electricity that is going to come into your home to light the home, to heat the home, is going to be coming from renewable energy. But what difference does it make to you as long as the lights go on and your house isn't freezing? So those costs will go down because if we invest in energy efficiency, we will need less energy, no matter what the energy source is, to keep the lights on, to keep the place heated. So they will be able to operate at the lifestyle they're familiar with, more or less, except it will cost less than it costs now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Now, in terms of the grand plan, you sort of say two and a half percent would do it. And it sounds like a reasonable sum, but actually, of course, two and a half percent is a huge amount. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, every government and every business would struggle to find that year on year. How do you persuade governments around the world to do that? If we think of it, you know, as this 30-year timeline, once the governments have made their investments, then energy becomes cheaper. So it's that initial investment period that is really the critical step. The government needs to create incentives and make it very easy and low cost for people to be able to make these investments. So large-scale enterprises, public enterprises, households to invest in energy efficiency and to buy electric vehicles or other low emission vehicles. And that's really where policy is going. Now, can we afford it? Yes, of course we can afford it because first of all, again, once you get over the hump, you can pay for your upfront investments through your savings over time. That would be, even if it makes sense in the long term and you start to make some of that money back, it would be a huge investment at any time. But especially mm -hmm. now, with mm -hmm. the backdrop of a global pandemic and every economy around the world suffering mm -hmm. as a result of it, when governments are already having to borrow so much just to keep their economies as steady as they can, what hope is there of them being able to invest in this? Again, Is this uh, just terrible timing? <laughs> no, it's good timing, actually. It's good timing because uh, we are focused on solving the macroeconomic problem of, you know, a near depression, whatever we want to call it. So over the short term, investing in the green economy is one of the things that will work very well. I myself have uh, been commissioned by uh, people in nine U.S. states to think about the Green New Deal as part of a recovery program. And by recovery, I mean, what can we do starting tomorrow? As I discussed retrofitting buildings, existing buildings, to make them more energy efficient is a very easy source of job creation as well as a climate stabilization program. 
you can invest right now in every single public building, make them 30% more energy efficient and have the jobs getting generated to do that. Now, yes, we need the money in order to pay for it. But note that what's happening throughout the world right now is the governments are undertaking very large levels of borrowing. And on top of that, we have uh, central bank interventions. For example, the U.S. Federal Reserve has uh, injected something like, and we, we don't know the exact number, something like $5 trillion into stabilizing the economy in the very short term. $5 trillion, uh, that's 20% of uh overall U.S. economic activity. So that's 10 times more than what we're talking about to move on to a climate stabilization path, 10 times more. So if they can come up with $5 trillion at the drop of a hat, they can easily come up with you know, $500 uh, billion in order to advance a, a clean energy program that will also be a major source of job creation in communities throughout the country. A lot of climate change activists see climate change and capitalism as going sort of hand in hand. And, and many sort of see the only solution being almost an end to capitalism. What's really interesting about your model is that actually it works within the current system and, and, and seems to sort of find solutions with economies mm -hmm. that we recognise. Hmm. Is it possible in your model for, for the economy to keep growing and still save the world? Can we still have growth? Yes. Uh, and yes, people who say that we're going to overthrow capitalism as a solution to climate change, not have a, a grasp on the timescale that we're dealing with. We have to go from where we are. And where we are is capitalism. And in particular, uh, a, a virulent ver version of capitalism, neoliberalism, that is uh, much more rigged in favor of the rich. And we've seen inequality rise throughout the world. But is there a sense that if you want the entire economy, the entire electorate to come on board with this plan, you've got to find a way of convincing mm -hmm. capitalists, people who are Republican voters, for example, in America, mm -hmm. as well as the Democrats. How do you do that if it seems like this is an agenda that's always being pushed by the far left? <laughs> I mean, if we look at, say, Warren Buffett, hardly a left-wing flamethrower, you know, the world's whatever, a third richest person. Buffett himself has moved half of his energy portfolio into renewable energy. And maybe that's because he cares about the future of the planet. I'm sure he does. But he also realizes that the lifespan of the fossil fuel energy is uh, winding down, and it has to. And so if Warren Buffett sees that, I think a lot of other people who are Wall Street investors see it fairly well. This is a project that really transcends everything because it, the fate of the earth is truly at stake. Last week, they introduced a massive government takeover that would destroy our incredible economic gains. They introduced the so-called Green New Deal. They want to raise everybody's taxes, everybody. And they want to do the Green New Deal, which will decimate our country and decimate. It's ridiculous, too. It's childish. I actually say the Green New Deal is childish. The idea that it's the fate of the world hanging in the balance doesn't seem to have caught on with a lot of the public. 
you know, Donald Trump pokes fun at the idea of a Green New Deal, but but even Joe Biden seemed keen to distance himself from it. Why is it so controversial? Do you think it's because it's so closely linked to radical politicians like AOC? If we're going to hang everything on this one resolution that was poorly thought out and done by people that did not do enough homework, frankly, then nobody's for the Green New Deal other than them. And that's why it got exactly zero votes in the Senate, including from the Democrats, including Bernie Sanders. It was just a poorly done document. And that happens. It shouldn't happen, but it does happen. So that's just like a little tiny side issue that really we need to get past it and recognize that the idea, and we can call it something else, but the idea is much broader. It's how do we get on a sustainable uh, environmental path, a clean energy, zero emissions path, and to do it in a way that also expands opportunities, raises living standards, and tackles poverty at the same time. That's what I mean by a Green New Deal. So whilst Joe Biden rejected that version of the Green New Deal in the presidential debate, nobody's quite sure if he's rejected the concept altogether. He's had his own version of the policy for a while, which even Noam Chomsky could just about live with. If you had Googled the Democratic Party program on climate, you would have received Joe Biden's proposals. Not great, but pretty good. In fact, better than anything that's been around in living memory. How much will this upcoming election in America, how much will it determine the future of the planet for all of us? Wow, I know that's a scary question, because I think that if Trump is reelected, we're in really bad shape, not just us in the United States, but globally, because the Trump administration has been aggressively opposed to any kind of climate action. It'll also create the framework in which a lot of other countries can say, ah, we don't believe in this crap. Trump doesn't believe in it. The United States, the biggest economy in the world, they're doing nothing about it. So that means that at the very least, we are postponing serious action for four years. And we are moving off of the path that will enable us to to get onto a sustainable path. Noam Chomsky agrees. The uh, Trump administration the sole major government in the world that is pushing its foot on the accelerator to maximize the threat. About a year ago, one of the Trump bureaucracies published one of the most remarkable documents in human history. It's amazing how little attention it received. It concluded from a careful analysis that on the course we're now following, uh, by the end of this century, not far off, we will reach four degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. The entire scientific community understands that this is what's called cataclysmic, indescribable. And then they draw some policy recommendations from it. The policy recommendations are that we should remove restrictions on auto and truck emissions. So more emissions. I would challenge people to see if there's any document like that in human history. Uh, One that comes to mind is the Wannsee Declaration of Nazi Germany in 1942, which formalized the plans to massacre the 
destroy the Jewish population, uh, tens of millions of Russians. One might have thought of that as the peak of horror in human affairs. But what about a document that says, uh, we're moving to a point where quickly soon, where organized human society is going to end in any recognizable form. Let's accelerate it. Anything that ranks with that? And is there anywhere, if you are looking for a glimmer of hope, is there anywhere where this is working now? What, what would you take as the role model? We still have government policy at, at different levels. And so at the levels of the U.S. states and municipalities, many, many of them will pursue climate stabilization policies, even if Trump is reelected. So the obvious example now is the state of California, which is, if it were a country, would be you know the sixth largest economy in the world. So the fact that California is so firmly committed and is moving forward with creative and serious climate programs is a model that the rest of the states can pursue, even if we have a uh, Trump administration for four more years. In Europe, we're at a point at which emissions are no longer going up, even while before the pandemic, even while the economy had been growing. So all we have to do is intensify the commitment to the pattern that's already emerging. In spite of his doom-laden warnings, Noam Chomsky feels hopeful too. There's plenty of reason for hope. The actions of young people are a sign of hope. The business world is to some extent shifting, partly because of concern about the reputational risks. So there are changes. They're much too slow. They have to be accelerated by popular action. But that can happen. And there's plenty of reasons for hope. The streets of London, the dedication of Extinction Rebellion is a sign of hope. You may question this tactic or that tactic, but the dedication and engagement are very significant. What are the worst case and best case scenarios here? You know, Describe <laughs> the future for us if, if we do follow a mm-hmm. Green New Deal or if we don't. Well, I guess the worst case scenario I already described, and that would be the Trump administration remaining in office. So if we have a very hostile U.S. administration at the level of the presidency, it makes things extremely difficult. Not impossible, not impossible. So even the worst case scenario, I think we can still make, it's just going to be much more difficult. All we need to do is think about creative financing and we can achieve a stabilization path that will also be good for jobs, good for people's living standards. And yes, capitalists will still be able to make money. It's possible to save the world and make a profit. Yes, it is. Noam, you've spent a lifetime as a political activist. Is this different you know, with this campaign, even though it could present the whole world with an existential threat, you know, it affects everybody rather than just one section of society. And yet it's hard to get people to care. Was it hard to get them to care about civil rights, about destruction of Indochina, worst crimes since the Second World War? Was it hard to get them to care about women's rights? Same kind of struggle uh, about abolition. Yes, it was very hard. 
but it was done. It's always hard to struggle against power and oppression and violence, but you do it. The people who've done it have made it a better world. Listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Noam Chomsky and Robert Polin. The producer was Brenna Daldorf, and the executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella, music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Ketzer. If you get a chance, please do leave us a review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and now we're also available on the Times Radio app along with all the other podcasts from The Times. To download the app, search for Times Radio in the App Store. See you tomorrow. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.